Do angry birds obey physics principles? How likely is it that two baseballs will collide in midair? How realistic are those science hacks in the TV series MacGyver? Are you curious how you can bring current news and science and pop culture, as well as fictional fun, into the classroom? Then you'll enjoy today's conversation with professor, author, blogger, YouTuber, and TV consultant, Rhett Elaine. Welcome to Physics Alive! I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, students, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, apply physics in their careers, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Good Physics Day, everyone! Today, I am speaking with Rhett Elaine, Associate Professor of Physics at Southeastern Louisiana University. Along with his teaching career, which was informed by his PhD in physics education research, he is a prolific blogger for the website Wired.com, has been a science consultant for the television series MacGyver and Mythbusters, has spoken on the radio show Science Friday, pours his heart and soul into physics videos on YouTube, is a proponent for video analysis and coding in the classroom, and has written four books, including Geek Physics, Surprising Answers to the Planet's Most Interesting Questions, and Angry Birds, Furious Forces. Phew! This is a lively conversation with a lot of laughs and enthusiasm for the physics all around us. Hello, Rhett, and welcome to Physics Alive. Uh, we'll get to your story and physics fun in a moment, but I want to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in shaping your career path and interests? I think many of us would say something similar about you know a high school physics teacher or something like that. I think it, they're, my high school physics teacher, I really remember um, uh, Mr. Ray Dagene, and uh, I went to school uh, in a suburb of Chicago, and, you know, he was just, he, he made good jokes. I don't know. There was something that made a connection with him and I really enjoyed. Uh, I actually took two physics classes with him. Uh, and, and it was really, I, I still remember some of the demos he did. And I know I wasn't great at physics at the time. Uh, none of us were in high school. But, but then the, the thing that really strikes me with, with him is I remember going to, I think it was my first American Association of Physics Teachers Conference when I was given a talk. I was in graduate school and I was given a talk. And, you know, I wasn't, you don't know what you're doing that first time. And uh, and it was in New Orleans, which I'm near New Orleans now, so it's really kind of funny. I, I show up, I look at the list of talkers, the speakers, and the uh, the guy right before me is Ray Dajne. And, like oh, and I hadn't seen the guy in probably 10, 15 years, you know. Oh my gosh. And he's given a talk right before me, and he remembered me. And so... Um, you know, it was, it was great to see him. And at the end of the conference, he actually gave me a ride to the airport with a couple of my graduate student friends. So uh, that was that was great. So, oh, that's a cool. That's that's really cool that you get you got to catch up with him then. <laughs> yeah. So, what is something that you believe to be true about good teaching and learning that other educators might disagree with? The the you know I've been teaching for a long time, twenty five years, more than twenty five years, and 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 I've changed over the time, uh, but but the and it's hard to let go, but you really have to let go and let students make mistakes. And, and that's the learning process. I think especially new teachers are like, I can't, I don't want them to ever do anything wrong. I don't want to say anything wrong. Nothing can ever be wrong, but wrong is part of learning. And, and it's, it's scary to let go. You know, it's scary to end a class where the, the answer isn't resolved and they may, they leave confused. Uh, but that confusion is the spark of, of, something better, right? 
Uh, hopefully, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they just end up confused and they give up. But but you have to take that chance. Uh, so to so taking those chances and letting go of control is, I think, and more. And this is a more advanced level thing. This is something that you know brand new teachers probably wouldn't do. That that's the important thing. That for newer teachers, I think they think I got to deliver the content. I have to tell them exactly all these ideas, uh, and content is the king. And I got to explain it to them, or they won't get it. Uh, but if if they don't do anything, if they're not doing anything when they're when they're learning, then they're not they're not really learning. And that's the that's the first level of of change, right? For for instructors to come in and say, oh, I gotta I gotta show them every single problem and do every single thing that they would need to do, and then they'll get it. But if they're not doing anything, then they're not learning. So those are really two different levels. But uh, those are the two different levels I would think about. Yeah, it's definitely something that I see in in myself and I've seen with other colleagues along the way where there's there's this sense and I've heard I've heard this comment before that oh the students aren't as strong as they used to be. And I wonder if that's really coming from the fact that we've seen the same mistakes year after year because of course we've seen the same mistakes year after year because it's a brand new set of students who've never seen this and they're going to make all the same mistakes and uh, and have the same misconceptions and preconceptions that that everybody has every single year. And I wonder if there's this, we get tired of seeing the same thing over and over again, and we have to right, let go and have the patience that of course they're having this trouble. They're brand, they're brand new. We're the old ones that have seen the same mistakes. That should, that should hopefully make us more patient. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I see this with the older faculty, you know, every year they learn a little bit more, right? Cause they were teaching physics mm -hmm. and, and I learned the most out of the whole class because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm teaching physics. And so every year they get a little bit better at physics and that kind of raises the top bar and they kind of bring up the bottom bar with it. And they think they kind of expect more out of the students every year because they've understood physics more. And it's very easy to forget the struggles that we had, uh, you know, when we were uh, a freshman in college, um, and, and to think that th the students are making these mistakes that we made, but we just kind of forgot about them. And, and it, it, you know, it's, it's it's important to remember those struggles. And I think that mm -hmm. is important. All right. Well, uh, that that's it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Rhett. I mean, I think we've covered. <laughs> no, no, I've got I've got some more questions. No, we, we just jumped right in here going into some great stuff. But I want to give listeners a little flavor of what you write and talk about. So a few weeks ago, I heard you speaking with Ira Flato on the sh radio show Science Friday. He was asking you about an event that happened recently, uh, an event that I was interested in because I'm uh, unfortunately a Philadelphia Phillies fan growing up in, in the Philly area. Uh, I say unfortunately because year after year, they just disappoint. Sorry, guys. Um, so anyway, two baseballs collided during a, a Phillies batting practice. One was being hit by Bryce Harper and there was another ball being thrown in from the outfield. I saw the video for that. And it was just it was just so cool to see the ball from the outfield suddenly drop straight down. You got to talk on the radio about this. What was what was interesting about this event? What did you want to investigate and write about? I mean, okay, I'm not a huge baseball fan. I mean, I'm a sports fan. You know, for me, it's more about uh, seeing events that get people interested, and then trying to say how can I how can I do put some physics into that because I, I like to analyze stuff. You know. And, and coming up with what questions could you answer about that event and then go ahead and answer those questions. I don't think I answered them all the way because it's such a complicated event. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but, you, but the first event is one, it's on video, right? And so that, that gives you some data right there. Uh, number two, you have this 
idea, this, this situation that happens that we talk about in physics class, of uh, this idealized situation. Imagine two balls colliding in the air so you don't have to worry about gravity and stuff like that. Well, there you go. It happened, mm-hmm. right? And so you got a real event. Um, and then you can talk about uh, momentum, uh, conservation momentum. You can talk about uh, one of the things I really enjoyed doing was this uh, Monte Carlo calculation about how, how, how you'd calculate how likely it would be instead of actually doing the calculations, you just make some random values and let it play out. Uh, it brings into another favorite thing of mine. How do you, how do you model the motion of two balls that are really complicated? And if you wanted to include air resistance, that's where you'd have to do a numerical calculation. And I, I'm a big fan of having students create numerical calculations in Python to calculate interesting things. And this is one of those cases. So that, that was really, you know, I, I browse stuff on Twitter or on Reddit and I saw this video and, it inspired me to look a little bit further. Um, and, and that's it. Once it gets popular, then other people can contact you. And then that's how I got in contact with uh, science Friday. Mm-hmm. So that, that was fun, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, but actually the, the more interesting thing that, that we were, ta- I was meeting with the producer of science Friday and we were talking about uh, baseball, which like I said, I'm not a huge expert. Uh, I don't know all, all the, all the details about, uh, all the ins and outs of baseball. I mean, the, the basic stuff is pretty fun, but there's some people that go crazy wild on baseball. Okay. Mm-hmm. And baseball physics too. Uh, and so the, the question was, well, how do you catch a baseball anyway? How do humans catch baseballs? And you know, we obviously don't do projectile motion calculations in our head. I mean, a lot of people don't even know how to do that anyway. I couldn't do that in three and a half seconds or five seconds or however long it takes to do a pop fly. And so it turns out that there's this idea of, uh, it's called optical uh, acceleration cancellation method or something like that. So oh you look at the motion of the ball p- compared to your uh, perspective. And if you can make it appear like it's not accelerating, you end up moving in the right spot to catch it. And so I modeled that and that, that actually worked. I was really, that was, that oh, wasn't wow. in the episode I did that after the episode, but that, I really enjoyed that. Although you have the guise of Associate Professor of Physics at Southeastern Louisiana University, your public persona is not so traditional compared to most professors I'm looking at. You are a popular blogger. You've consulted for the TV show Mythbusters. And as we just discussed, you've made guest appearances on the audio show uh, Science Friday. So I want to get into the topics you like to read and write and speak about and how you approach them. But I'm also interested to hear how you got started. So you earned your PhD in physics at North Carolina State University in 2001, working with Robert Beekner and being part of the, the scale up project, which is a topic that will absolutely get its own episode at some point. Uh, so what was it like teaching in that environment then? And then what did you end up transferring to southeastern Louisiana when you started there? I mean, I think, you know, I, I earlier I said uh, my high school teacher was a big influence. I mean, Bob Bigner was obviously a huge influence. He was he was kind of a blogger. I mean, he hmm. in what he did, he he did it in a textbook. He didn't do it online, but he would do the same kind of things, you know, uh, and, and for his curriculum with scale up, you know, how does an electric toothbrush recharge and how can we talk about uh, electromagnetic induction? You know, those are the kind of things that he would do. Um, he did he did video analysis. I'm a huge a fan of video analysis, one of the original video analysis programs he wrote. So, um, hmm. was it Videograph or yeah, it's called Videograph and it ran on the Apple and it was, it came on a floppy disk. So, uh, <laughs> it's old stuff, Back but, in the day. but you know, scale up was really, uh, helped me transform the way, the way I teach and, and to, to switch from lecture based learning to more and student centered learning. 
Um, and, and so I learned a lot and, and the scale up program when, you know, I started on that in the very beginning and, you know, we went from different rooms and we would focus on how to make a table and how big of a table you had to make and how many students were in each group, all those little details that, that seem to be fleshed out now is things like that were, uh, interesting, uh, to work with, especially to work with Bob. And, and I'm really surprised at how far that program has gotten. I mean, how many, how many other, uh, institutions that's influence at least. Do you have uh, big numbers of students in your classes at Southeastern or so, so that you could do a, a scale up type of model? Or are you in a little bit of a smaller environment? I mean, we're definitely, I mean, it's, it's, it's scale up. It would be scale up area. You know, when I first started, I mean, and, and I don't, I'm just going to tell you the truth here. Uh, I don't do scale up at Southeastern. Uh, so when we, we, when, when I started, I tried to get scale up, uh, implemented. It was one of my goals, but we have, uh, the lecture course and the, one of the goals of scale up is to have lecture and lab mixed together and, and lecture and lab are two separate courses here. And so in order mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. same students in the same section, it was a lot of work and it was very difficult. You had to actually recruit students. I had to say, Hey, I want you to sign up for these two sections that, that mix together. Um, and, and with that, after a while, it was just, it was just too painful to, to try to force students into that model of, you know, registering for this section and this lab. And so uh, we have a scale-up room. It's not a huge room, uh, but we have a scale-up room and I don't teach that class in there anymore. We do use the room though a lot. And the room has whiteboards on the side. It's got round tables uh, and it's got projectors. Uh, I'm teaching in the class there this summer and I love it because I can have students work on the boards. Uh, They can do my favorite, my absolute favorite activity in class, which is uh, something I stole from some other physics teachers, uh, speed dating. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. done speed dating. Oh no, I haven't. I haven't done that. Oh, you, it's the best. So you give, you give students a problem, uh, and you break them into groups of two and they all have a, a board, a presentation board that they can work on. And they, they work for the, on the problem for two minutes. And then after two minutes, each student moves to a new board. In oh my a different gosh. Group. So, and there, it could be a partially completed board with a new student and, you know, they're like, I don't know what this student did. These, this group before us did, let's just erase it. Or, or oh, they did something <laughs> really great here. Let's, let's work on it again. But the amount of engagement is amazing. Uh, mm. You get students that, that were quiet and they don't want to talk to other students. But by the end of the thing, it's like they know everyone in the class. They had to work with everyone because mm-hmm. they all, they rotated through. Um, it is the app. It's the best activity I've ever done. Now, it, you have to have enough space. Right. If you have a class of 100, it's going to be kind of hard because you want that to be 50 boards. Um, but it's I've never seen that level of engagement from students before. And they it's really great. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, one, one of the places I saw the most engagement and it was it was sort of grade related, I guess. So it's almost not surprising. But I uh, after an exam, I, I picked out the the problems where the most students had gotten some points off. And I wrote up those parts of the problems on a separate page. And then I put them back in their groups the following class. And I said, work on these again, but with your group. And this is going to get you points back on your exam. And I, I mean, that, that is the most engagement I've heard out of my students. Like they're just talking, trying to figure this out because they know it's like, wow, I'm going to improve my exam grade if we can just figure out the correct answers here. And, and I didn't tell them what was right. Nobody knew if they had gotten the problem right or not. So they just kind of dove into it with with the intention of, we want to figure this out. And, and it was so cool to be able to see that, but yeah, 
I mean, uh, that, that's I, the best thing when you can, when students are engaged and, you know, they forget that you're in the room. I mean, that's, that's a win for me. So I love that. The other, the other case where they, they get like that, where they get super engaged is I'll, I'll give them a in-class assessment and it's, you know, it's a 20 minute question that they would have to do. Uh, and I'll say, okay, you can, you can take that paper and you can talk to anybody that you want in the room for two minutes, but you can't write anything down. Right. So you can, you can do whatever you want, talk to anyone, but you can't no writing. And then, so, so they'll, they'll move wherever they need to move to get to the person they think that is, you know, the most useful in that two minutes, you do two <laughs> or five, but, but oh, they're, they're all over the place at that point. You know, that, they, that gets rid of their, uh, some of the students are shy. Oh, they're not shy during that time. Right. Cause I want to get, <laughs> Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then after that you say, okay, now you can take the test, but you can't talk. So you can write, but you can't talk. So it's mm-hmm. more of a traditional test. And I really like that. So it's all these tricks. I don't make up these tricks, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I steal them from other people on Twitter. And, uh, <laughs> well, and that, and that's what I'm doing this podcast for making a whole, a, a whole, a whole set list of, of tricks that we can all take what, what works for us. Right. Because obviously you can't do all of them either. You were, you would have a very busy class day if we tried to do everything all, all at once. You come to Southeastern as an assistant professor and, and the traditional way of things is do some research, publish some papers, get some tenure, and then go from there. And somewhere along the way, you started blogging. Was this, was this pre-tenure? Was this post-tenure? How is it that you got started with this and how did it evolve into, uh, into this, well, into what you're doing today, which is a lot of science writing? Yeah, that's a great question. I like that. Um, yeah, tenure is tough, right? You know, because you're dealing with people that may have different goals than what you have um, and different expectations. So yeah, I, I got, I got tenure the normal way, um, you know, grants and papers and stuff like that. Um, even though we we are at a primarily teaching institute that does expect research too, but uh, you know we don't have a graduate program, uh, so we mostly just have uh, you know undergraduate teaching. So, but after I got there's two things that really got me into into blogging. One, after I got tenure, I said, okay, I have I have tenure now. I can do what I think is right, not what I think is going to get me tenure. And that, and I think that's what tenure is for, right? So that you can take that risk and say, well, I, I don't have to worry about if this ends up in a publication or a grant, I can do what I think is the best for people anyway. And so that was one thing in my mind. And the other thing I was teaching a class and the students, as happens in many classes, they say, Hey, can we do a bonus project? And I'm like, well, okay, that's fine. Let's, let's do that. Right. Because, uh, <laughs> you can do a bonus project, but it was just terrible it was as many people it's just they they think a bonus project means um i'm gonna do something that that just look up something and write down something but it wasn't inspired it wasn't um they weren't excited about they were just trying to to get extra points uh and i did and it kind of i was like well maybe i wasn't clear right maybe they didn't understand what i meant by project and so i said well i'll do an example how about i do a couple Mm -hmm. of examples and write them up and then I'll say, this is the kind of project that I would expect that you should do. And I, I'm pretty sure one of the early projects was this uh, Ford F-150 commercial where there's a plane that lands and the Ford F-150 comes out the back of the plane on the runway and uses, w- attached with the cable and the, the, the truck stops the plane. And so I said, I'll do an analysis, an analysis of that. And, uh, and then I did a couple others. And then I was like, you know, forget the students. I don't care about them. I'm stuck <laughs> on these projects. I want to do some more of this stuff. I got so addicted uh, to blogging um, that it was just, you know, I just, I just loved it. 
I, and I, you know, I, I made it for the students at first, but eventually I wrote too much stuff that it was, the students didn't, didn't look at it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't focus, I guess you could, you, I don't focus the whole class on, on blogging anyway. Um, but, you know, everywhere I saw there was something physics related that I just wanted to write about. And, uh, and I just got excited and that's where it went. And, and then, you know, so I started off with the, a blog on the school server. At some point, the university made a policy that you couldn't have individual servers anymore, so they killed my blog. I was really, I was really bummed about that. Um, so I paid for my own server, and then after that, um, some. I think it must have been Chad Orzel from Uncertain Principles. Uh, you know, he was kind of my mentor at the time, uh, and I and he said, "Oh, well, you, you should do. You should go to science blogs." Uh, uh, and I think they still technically have science blogs. So I, I went to science blogs, which was really nice because they paid you and they didn't pay you very much. It was based on the traffic, but you know, it, it went from paying for a server to th- they actually pay you to write. And I'm like, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, a, good it's, it's yeah. a tiny amount of money, money, but I didn't care. I was doing <laughs> something I loved and they paid me suckers. Um, <laughs> and then when, in I think it was 2009, maybe 2010, it's 2010 wired, uh, contact me. And they said, "Hey, we're we're starting some blogs, and we would like you to blog." And then, uh, and that's how I went there. And and so, you know, I've been I've been at Wired mostly for ten years. They 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 got rid of me for a little bit during the pandemic, but then they brought me back. So so here I am. And then, and then when you you know when you write these blogs, would they get popular? Especially the great thing about Wired is that it has a, a giant reach. Um, and then I get contacted by Mythbusters because I wrote about Mythbusters and that's how I became a, a Mythbusters, uh, the technical consultant for Mythbusters. Uh, because I did Mythbusters, I did, uh, MacGyver was looking for a science person for when they started up in 2016 and they said, hey, could you be the, the tech consultant for MacGyver? And I did way more work on MacGyver than I did for Mythbusters and that was super awesome. Uh, so, you know, one thing leads to another and, and there you go. So Now, it seems like every one of these topics is going to be completely different and and like and anytime you look at real world physics it's always way more complex than the the textbook cases that that we all grow up on so you must be having to learn so much new information each time you dive into a new topic i mean i'm i'm sure you've probably got it streamlined so that you have a, a process for thinking about it but so as you go into that how how much time do you end up spending with with one of those topics how much new do you find yourself learning in order to be able to kind of tackle a new calculation and a new idea usually i'd like to pick things that i already know a lot of stuff about uh and there's so many out there right there's so many things like the baseball um you know i've already done a monte carlo calculation so it wasn't it wasn't a big deal i do do some research sometimes but i don't i don't consider myself one of those research bloggers because that do a super great job there's some people out there that do so much research and they they're they're it's just great um, I, I prefer to do a lot of fast stuff, uh, and, and write fast, something that I already know a lot about. Cause you know, if you, and I think that's the, the point that I like to make to students is even though these are real world situations, the very simple fundamental physics can take you a long way, right? Mm-hmm. If you just use forces, yeah. momentum, work, and energy, I mean, you can do crazy amounts of stuff. And then on top of that, it doesn't even have to be real anyway half the stuff or more than half the stuff I do is science fiction or superheroes or star Wars or Lord of the Rings or stuff that I think is awesome. Right. Cause it's all about me. I don't really care about the readers. I write what I want to write. So I'm mostly joking, but I'm not actually joking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I write what I want to read. Right. And I think that was an important thing that people mm-hmm. asked me early on. What, 
you know, how, how do you find what to write? And it's like, write what you want to write. Don't worry about whether people read it or not. Because if you're writing what people want to read and you're always doing what other people want, you're going to, you're going to lose interest in it. Um, right. But if you're writing what you want to write about, then you're going to get super into it. And folks who are interested in that will just say, Hey, I want to read that. Cause this guy's getting all excited about it. I right. want to get excited about it too. That's exactly right. And, and I have, I have to admit, I have changed a lot and wired has changed. You know, originally on, I, I would just write whatever I want and, and I can still mostly do that. But, uh, let's say I remember doing some quantum mechanic stuff and, and the, the math got super complicated, but I don't really care. I'm going to do it anyway. It's going to be in there. I'm going to go into the weeds in the math. <laughs> I don't do that anymore on wired. I would do that on another blog, but you know, wired is, is geared more toward general audience. And, and I, I just, I just don't do that. I, I'm not going to uh, go as far into depth. I mean, I, I probably should, but I have another outlet for that anyway. I, I, I write on Medium too. And then I, there I just write whatever I want. So to tie this back to to what we can do in the classroom then. So you you mentioned that that early on this was related to projects you, you had your stu students doing. So I'm curious, do you still have uh, students do a project or two each semester of, of this style, or are there other ways that you can bring some of your writing into the classroom? I mean, I typically about, you know, when, when they get past a certain point, let's say they get past, um, you know, gravity, you know, I'll, I'll do a, a, a present, a 30 minute presentation in class on uh, artificial gravity and science fiction and how they do deal with it or something like that. Um, and, or the science of Star Wars, something that just for fun, you know, I'm not going to really, and, and they do, there's, there's a group of students that just think that's awesome. And, and then I don't think they learn a, a bunch from it. It's not like, I know I'm not really uh, helping them understand gravity better, but I am kind of giving them, some of them are, get inspired to, to go a little bit further. Um, you know, and, and then it's always funny bringing it into the classroom. Sometimes my blog posts get brought into the classroom by the students. Uh, and and I, I love that. I, I remember I was talking about Spider-Man or something in class, you know, because I'm a huge Spider-Man fan. And, uh, you know, a week later, someone says, oh, Dr. Lane, I, I, I have, I'm going to send you this link. This, this, there's this great blog post. This guy uh, calculated the tension or the maximum strength in Spider-Man's web. I'm like, oh, great. I actually you. wrote that. So, <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't know I wrote it. And like, you sent me something I wrote. I mean, I think that's great, but you do see my name up at the top. Yeah. So <laughs> that's happened more Don't than worry about that part. The, the fact that they were, they were investigating it on their own and they found right. it. That's cool. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and you know, I, I'm not, it, it's not that I have super great blog posts, but being online for 10 years, there's a lot of stuff out there, right? That has my name on it. There's videos, there's stuff, even my kids who don't think I'm cool, you know, their friends will say, Oh my, they, I found your dad on this video. And I think that's so cool. I'm like, well, see, they think I'm cool, but my kids don't think I'm cool. Yeah. You can't trust everything your friends say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but when people find stuff, that's always fun. So, or there was a, uh, there was one of my, you know, I had my kids played soccer and one of the dads on the soccer team, he was a physical therapist that would go to people's houses and stuff. And he said, uh, Oh, I, I came in and and the the lady was watching TV and you were on the TV, and uh, it was the it was the uh, the MacGyver bonus the, the the bonus features on MacGyver. Um, so I did a bunch of videos for MacGyver about how to do things that you know MacGyver hacks that you could do at home, and and that was on the TV. And he so then he thought I was cool too. So you know every slowly people think I'm cool every once in a while, but you know it takes a long time. I mean, we're physicists. Is cool really what we're going for? Or no, is it? It's just a bonus. 
yeah, it's it's a bonus, but it's like, are you interested in physics? Yeah, I gotcha. I, I told that to my students this semester. I said, I don't care if you walk out of this classroom, you don't really remember a thing at all. But if if you now all of a sudden are looking at the world around you and you see something that looks like physics and you get curious and you ask questions about it and you look it up, it's like, I win. Yeah. It's like, that's what I wanted to do. I like I that. wanted to get you interested. So you've written a number of books along the way, and now I just want to ask about all of them, but I, I'm committed to not making my episodes go an hour anymore. I had a couple early <laughs> ones that were maybe a little too long. <laughs> Although some podcasters oh. make episodes that are two hours and people still listen, but you know, I, if anybody I, just cringed, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> on, on a side note, you know, I, I've been making YouTube videos uh, in the past, you know, more YouTube videos in the past year or two, and and longer videos are popular. And I'm like, mm. it used to be in the in the beginning days, if it was over three minutes, no one would watch it. And now, I mean, I can make a, I feel comfortable making an hour long video, and and some people are like, yeah, bring bring on the hour long video, you know. So there's, con I guess there's consumers of any length of time you can come up with. Yeah. So. Anyway, the, those the books. Now, yeah, now I want to ask about all of them, but I'm just going to pick one of them out. So we'll we'll just go with Geek Physics: Surprising Answers to the Planet's Most Interesting Questions, uh, published by Wiley in 2015. I'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who's interested. Actually, uh, Turner Publishing. Oh, Turner Publishing. Oh, okay. It was originally going to be published by Wiley, and and Turner bought Wiley their their trade book. So it was that was a complicated story, but that's for sure. So why did you decide to write this book? And what are some of these interesting questions that you wanted to answer? So that book, um, like I said, it was it was originally from Wiley. Uh, and a, an editor at Wiley's trade books contacted me and, they, and he said, hey, I like the stuff that you have online. I think you should make it into a book. And I said, well, okay, let's do that then. You know, I don't mm -hmm. know. And so really that geek physics is kind of a reimagining of a lot of my earlier blog posts. And, and I learned it was, it was really difficult because my blog writing style includes lots of equations and a lot of, uh, you know, graphs and diagrams and, and that doesn't work as well in the, in a book form. Um, and so you really kind of have to rethink about the way you do things. And, and I did, and I, and I ended up, I I'm happy with that book. Uh, but I think it could have been a lot better because that was the first book I really wrote, but that, that's, that's where it came, came about. And I think, I think that I actually published the Angry Birds Furious Forces book from National Geographic's before that one, even though I wrote Geek Physics first because, uh, of the delay in publishing that I, I sneaked in mm -hmm. that other book in between. And I should write another book, but you know, blogging, the, the difference in writing a book and writing a blog is like that instant gratification when you write a blog. You can write the blog and publish it and move on to something else cool. Whereas with the blog post, you really have to have the, you have to stick with it and, and see it out through the long haul. And that's not as much fun. Now I want to talk about Angry Birds. So I don't know if it was, it was you that gave the talk at AAPT or maybe somebody else who picked up the, on, on the idea, but this was probably back in 2012, 2013. And I was doing a, a bit of video analysis in my class and, and I, I saw this, this talk about, it's like, oh, let's do video analysis with angry birds and see if, uh, if they got any of the physics right. And I thought that's a really cool idea. And, and I did end up doing that, uh, for, for one of my, one of my courses, I think in that spring, I must've gone to the winter meeting. And then I, I did that in my course at the spring and it was, it was a big hit that the students were, were really enjoying it. I was, I was loving getting to, to give that a try. And it was just, uh, you know, I was trying to avoid Angry Birds, but too many of my students said, no, you got to play it. So I played it and then I was addicted, of course, because it's just, it's just fun. Uh, so yeah, what, 
what what did you what did you do with with that? What what were you what were you learning about in that what, that project? What did, what kind of fun stuff did you find about Angry Birds? I'm so glad we're talking about Angry Birds because I <laughs> love Angry Birds. I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of sad that there's you know the the current Angry Birds isn't the old Angry Birds, and there's not another game like that. Um, but and and I, I I'm pretty sure the talk that you saw had to have been me. I'm I'm pretty sure I was the first one to use video analysis to look at the physics of Angry Birds, and I did a of it and the Angry Birds book is not my analysis it and it's really strange you know because National Geographic had an Angry Bird the real Angry Birds book and um the idea was it's it's you know a, a nice pictures and it's got good science and the idea was here are real birds and here's Angry Birds we're going to use Angry Birds to talk about real birds and it I think it's a great book and then they had a similar one about space and then they came to me and I, I kind of wrote three chapters of a book that was more like my blog post of analysis. And then we just threw that away and went with like, okay, we're just going to use Angry Birds to talk about physics. I'm pretty happy with the book. Um, it, I think it turned out pretty nice, but it's not, it's not what I did, but you know, it's nice to go to national geographic. And I gave a talk with Boyd Matson and uh, the guy from Angry Birds, uh, Peter Vesterbaka, who's, who's super cool. And I did actually went to Sweden with him too, to make a video. Ooh, that was actually, oh, cool. <laughs> they wanted to make a video about uh it, for Angry Birds Go, where you're, it's a racing game, and where the humans are driving uh, the Angry Birds in the game, and they said we're going to have the chickens driving humans in a sled. So I was one of the humans that went to we went to uh, the ski slopes in Sweden and, oh and filmed uh, some stuff. So you can if you it's called the Revenge of the Angry Birds. It's a video you can find it. Uh, but that was quite an adventure. Um, but, but the Angry Birds, I too got into Angry Birds because my kids were like, Hey, you got to play this game. I started playing it and it was, it was one of the best, I think it was the best mobile game at the time. And I think it really redefined mobile gaming because it was simple. Um, it was, uh, repetitive in a way that you could do, it could be repetitive, but different. Um, and I really was attracted to the game and anything that I love, I want to blog about. That's why I do Star Wars or, you know, The Expanse or whatever I find interesting. That's what I want to write about. And so for me, you come up with all these questions. Is is this real physics? Is how how big is the Angry Birds, right? You know, because it does have a projectile motion with a constant vertical acceleration, but it's not a realistic acceleration because that would make it not fun. So they, the acceleration, you could say the acceleration's lower, or you could say the scale's bigger. Uh, so like that red bird is like, I think it's 70 centimeters in diameter bird uh, if it's if it has realistic acceleration of gravity. Um, and then, then there's always other questions. You know, how does this other bird work? How does the yellow bird work? What happens to that blue bird when you tap it and it turns into three birds? What happens? That one's my favorite because you, it's just like real real science, right? I want to find out something about gravitational waves. I want to measure gravitational waves. Well, you can't just do that, right? I want to I want to find out what what's a proton made of. Well, that's hard, right? So I need to I can't just take a proton and cut it with a knife. I have to come up with an experiment to look at that. And the same thing's true in Angry Birds. I have to find a level that has the bluebird that collides with something and I can measure the collision at the velocity before and after. So then I can hit, I found a rock sitting on like a little, a little pedestal and you can hit the blue bird with the rock and the rock falls off and you can measure the recoil velocity. And then you can do it with the red bird and see how much the recoil velocity is. So you can make a comparison between masses of the red bird and the blue bird. And then you can, you can tap the 
the bluebird into threes and have one of the three bluebirds hit it and then see how the recoil is. Spoiler alert. So if, if you have a bluebird and it has a mass of one and then you split it into three, each of those bluebirds that splits into three has a mass greater than one. What? Yeah. But it's a video game. It doesn't have to make sense. It's for fun. Right? I feel like there's an analog here to particle physics that you get. Maybe maybe the first bluebird before you split it was carrying with it some significant amount of dark matter. Oh, dark matter. Or maybe maybe yeah. it's in an extra dimension. Yeah. And then and then when you split it, it all comes into into our dimension. But that's what makes that's what <laughs> makes this this game so addicting, right? Because you don't know the answer. It's mostly correct physics, but it's not correct physics. And you kind of say, okay, well, how can I set up an experiment to explore that? And I want to do that again, but I, I don't I need a good game because I don't want a three dimensional game because it's too hard to analyze. I want a 2d game that's simple, but has some things that aren't quite right that I can, I can go to town on. Uh, and, and Angry Birds was the best. It was a, a huge phenomenon. It was a huge brand recognition, you know, in the top 10 worldwide, you know, below mm. Coke and Disney. Uh, so it was it was a huge wow. deal. Um, so I, I miss those days because it was so much fun. So your message to upcoming game creators is make something with good but still slightly questionable physics in 2D so that you can you can do some analysis. And and that's intriguing, right? Because uh, yeah. There's a, there's a side to it too. Like, should I tap the blue bird and break it into three or not? Right. That was, mm-hmm. that was that a good strategy or not? Yes. It's always a good strategy. Uh, but I want to be able to figure that out <laughs> with physics. And, uh, and it was so great. And I remember even early on, you know, you did some video analysis with, with angry birds. I mean, early on, I actually had a video camera looking at my iPad to get the videos so I could analyze it, you know, because it was so hard. You couldn't, you, I couldn't screen capture my phone. This was in, in 2012. The iPhone right, would yeah. do that. Oh, and, and, you know, that's another thing I love to do is take, you know, I love, I love my phone. I analyze the things I love. So, you know, what's the angular field of view of the camera? I mean, you can look it up, but no one, I can't really find that information. So I just do an experiment for it, right? Because it's more fun to do an experiment to measure the angular <laughs> field of view anyway. Or um, where's, I was doing an experiment and I wanted to know where the accelerometer was in the in the iPhone, so I so said I'm just going to do an experiment for that. So I actually put my phone on a rotating platform and and moved it further and further away from the center of rotation, and then I turned it sideways and did it again. And you can get the you can get the location of the accelerometer and those kind of things. Anytime there's a new feature on the phone, I'm like I'm, I'm just going to make it into experiment. So I, I feel like for the the next pandemic, not that I want another one. Uh, our phones are going to be so sophisticated that we're not going to need to go out and buy any other technologies such as, you know, I know they have the IO labs and there's, you know, the pivot online. It's like, at some point we're just going to be able to, it's like, okay, I have my phone. I can actually do all of the experiments in a physics class with just, with just this device. Cause it'll have four sensors. I think, sensors I think along you can do that now. Stuff. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, the pivot interactive labs, I think are super great and they don't do anything that you couldn't do except that they take away some of the tedious parts. You know, you know, making a video with your camera, with your phone, you need a tripod, you need a scale, you need to keep it stable. You need to transport that video over to your computer. And then you need to analyze it. You need to uh, scale the video and then mark all those points. And, and it, the, the, the pivot, that's not physics. That's just tedious. And so pivot takes that out of the way. Um, th- there are, I have, I have a lab that I do every semester. It's called uh phone lab, right? And so what they what students do is they they uh, put a Firefox uh, 
app on their phone. And then I tell them, you find an experiment to do. I don't know if you if you use Firefox. I haven't. I've heard about it, but oh, I, I haven't. it's so good. It's really good. Uh, and then they, they even have suggested experiments in there. My favorite one is uh, measuring the speed of sounds. So what you do is you take two phones and they both have Firefox on them and uh, you put them a known distance apart and then you clap. And then uh, basically by looking at the difference in time from the two phones that, that hears that clap, you can calculate the speed of sound. Uh, and it's really fun. So Goodness, yeah, we have this this sophisticated setup. It was probably built 20 years ago with, with all these the different receivers and transmitters to do that. As a, and apparently you can just do it on the phones now. Yeah. That's, oh, and they have, uh, um, you know, Fourier transforms of sound. They have the uh, you can do frequency responses of the acceleration. I, 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 I can't talk anymore about it cause this is so awesome. Oh, okay. uh, one more, the, the, the change in pressure in an elevator, when you move up in an elevator, it can do that. The change um, in pressure. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so you can determine your height based on the change in pressure, uh, from your phone. If your phone has a pressure sensor, not ever, now they don't all do that, but a lot of them do. So, mm -hmm. and it's just, the, the guys come up with great experiments, um, you know, it's free. It runs in all apps. It's just they we've had these kind of phone apps before that that were pretty good at measuring stuff, but they didn't they, they, they weren't as all encompassing as this. You can export the data. I don't know. There's just nothing bad about Firefox. Those guys are awesome. They rock. OK, so apparently I'll, I will put them on my list for a future interview. Yeah, oh, yeah I, would love to. I would love to learn that. That's that's part of what's great about this show for me that. Uh, I'm getting to learn so much as, as I'm, as I'm sharing with everybody. So, so I think I, we may have gotten to this a little bit, but I'll, I'll ask it specifically. So when students have finished a year of physics with you, what do you hope they've taken from the class? In the past 10 years, the thing that I harp on the most is, uh, the idea of a numerical calculation. You know, you can solve problems by breaking into smaller pieces. And that's the thing that I, I really, you know, and there's a lot of students that are afraid of, of programming. Um, and, but it's so important to not be a programmer, but to understand programs and to understand a numerical calculation because 75% of what we do in physics and other fields are numerical calculations. Uh, so that, that's really what I want them to come away with. Um, and, and overall in the past five to seven years, it's gotten way better with the way better tools, you know, GlowScript, uh, being online so they don't have to install anything on their computer, mm -hmm. a trinket.io that they don't even have to log in and to use it. Trinket.io works on their phone. They don't even need a, they don't even need a computer. Um, so that, that's the thing that I, I, I would hope that they can understand. And I've even have, I make them do a numerical calculation as part of their, a part of the, the whole course. Sometimes it's optional and replaces their lowest grade. Sometimes it's not, but I, I, I they don't have to use Python. They can do whatever they want. They can even break it into small pieces and do it by hand, which I encourage them to do because they can realize how terrible of an idea that is. Mm -hmm. uh, but then they do. <laughs> I always get someone that says, I did this on hand. I, I, I solved the electric field due to a charged rod by breaking it into eight pieces. And then I calculated the electric field at all these different locations from all these eight pieces. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of work. Yeah, here's my eight pages of work. I'm like, mm -hmm. I think that's great. If you don't want to do a Python, you don't have to because numerical calculations are not programming right? It's not. Mm -hmm. It's about mm -hmm. breaking into small pieces. Right, yeah. Python just makes it easier. Uh, so so that that's the one thing that I, I really think that they should come away with it. And, and then they get a better understanding of, I think they really understand physics better when they do that. Uh, but they also understand the way the world works in so many different ways that we use that idea of, you know, and I think 
they come in thinking a numerical calculation is just a simulation that it's a video game. It's not, it's not real. It's not real physics, right? It's real physics. It's just as real as any other method we use to solve problems. And if listeners are interested in, in bringing some of the, the numerical calculations in, you can go back a couple months of episodes. I should probably look up what episode number it is, but I interviewed Brian Lane a few months ago and he uh, talked about his channel, Let's Code Physics, and just about how easy it can be to bring this into the classroom with many of these resources that you just mentioned being free and online and, and pretty easy to set up and use. Want to tie up our conversation about your experiences and projects by reimagining the future. What do you hope to see next in the world of science education? I mean, I think we're doing a really great job of, of you know, especially in physics. You look at the field of physics education research. Um, I mean, I think it's very mature and it's been mature for 20 years. I, I think I would like to see more uh, student creations of videos. I use video uh, student uh, video analysis. I mean, they, where the students create videos uh, to explain problems. I'd like to see more of that and more widespread, uh, less emphasis on grading, more emphasis on learning. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think we're really making great, great stuff. I'd like to see a better, I, obviously the textbooks are not super great. Uh, and I don't think they've ever really improved that we're going to get rid of textbooks at one point, right? People are doing online stuff anyway. Um, but and I like to say, if a textbook falls in a forest and no student reads it, does it even make a noise? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that that's something that I would really like to, I think we're making strides on that. You know, what, how to deliver con they do need some content. How do we deliver the content to the students? Mm -hmm. Textbooks, not the way, cause they're not going to read it. So to finish up, what is one easy way that physics teachers can bring science news and events into their classes? And then where can listeners follow you and learn more about your work? I think uh, one thing that's, that teachers can do is to, I think the best thing to bring in news is to let the students bring in the news. So have some way that they can have an uh, online form or share with other students. You know, it, it doesn't matter what you think. If the students find something, then that's great. Mm -hmm. And if it's, a, if it's a current topic, if uh, SpaceX launches a new rocket or we discover gravitational waves, I think it's that's always a, a shoe in to get your foot in the door and say, we're going to talk about that. It doesn't matter if it's in, related to this topic or not. And yes, it will be on the test, but I'm just joking. It's not going to be on the test. Um, so that that's the best way. Give give the students control. Uh, if if students want to, if people want to follow me, uh, the best I think the bet the best place is Twitter. Uh, R, at R J Lane is my is my Twitter. Um, I post everything that I post there. Uh, but other than that, Google works. Actually, fortunately, my parents were very forward thinking. They gave me a name that's very Googleable. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Thanks, you can Mom. Google Red Elaine and you can find, you know, and I actually do that all the time too, right? If it's hard for me to figure out when um, I did some other baseball thing, well, I'll Google Red Elaine baseball and I'll find my own stuff because I can't, that's, I just use Google to find my own stuff. Twitter works. I post everything there. I have uh, two YouTube channels. One is just Red Elaine. I post all my science demos there. Uh, it, that one's really old actually, uh, but it's kind of evolved. I, I mostly post science demos in MacGyver. Uh, demonstrations there and then have another channel that I've, I've been working on uh, physics explained where I, I do, you know, just physics problems and physics. Th I, that's what I use for my classes and stuff like that. So I, I like to do a lot of Python stuff there and how to solve things in, uh, in Python. Uh, so those, those are some great options. All right, folks, I'm going to have a lot of links in today's show notes. So uh, go check stuff out. This has really been a, a fun conversation. I have, I've chuckled heartily many times. Uh, so I, I appreciate the, 
uh, the the levity and fun uh, that you bring to to physics to to help get not just students but uh, but but everybody out there more interested and more appreciative of uh, of how we go about thinking about the world. Well, thank you for having me. I've had a great time. Also, it's been a lot of laughs. Thank you for the great interview, Rhett. Part of the fun of hosting these interviews is seeing what directions the conversations will go. Sometimes the guest and I get lost in excited conversation about education theory, and other times we're just laughing about fun physics and the world around us. There's room for all of it. After talking with Rhett, I dug into my files and pulled out a binder I keep with all of my notes from the AAPT meetings. Sure enough, I found a sprawl of notes from a winter 2012 session all about doing video analysis with Angry Birds, presented by none other than Dr. Elaine. I remember having such a great time using that activity a few times when the Angry Birds game was at its peak. To learn more about Rhett and everything he's been up to over the years, such as the Dot Physics blog, his YouTube and Twitter musings, uh, and his books, check out the show notes on your podcast app or by visiting physicsalive.com slash Rhett. That's R-H-E-T-T, physicsalive.com slash Rhett. You can also share your comments about the episode on the webpage. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter and Physics Alive page on Facebook. You can reach me there or at brad at physicsalive.com. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Today's action step, read one of Rhett's blog posts. Maybe you'll want to assign a project like that to your students, or maybe you'll just have fun learning some new physics. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you joyfully see the physics all around you, and be well.